Our scripture reading this morning comes from 2 Samuel uh, eleven twenty six through twelve ten, and uh, and then I'm going to skip on to verse thirteen. Uh, a little convoluted. I just don't want to make our scripture reading that long. So, <laughs> um, a little background. This is uh, the end of a pretty famous story: the story of David and Bathsheba. We've been following the life of King David. And, um, and watched him rise to the throne of Israel. And now uh, he has got everything in the world that he's ever wanted. And uh, his eye has wandered. And he's found one thing more. Uh, the thing that he cannot have. And so uh, this story comes at the end of the story of David and Bathsheba. Second uh, Samuel eleven twenty six through 12, 10. Hear now the word of our Lord. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. After the time of mourning was over, David had brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. The Lord sent Nathan to David. When he came to him, he said, There were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it, and it grew up with all his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this deserves to die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, You are the man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your servants' wives into your arms. I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if all this had been too little... I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now therefore the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. This is the word of God. May it find its way into our hearts and lives this morning by the power of his Holy Spirit. Amen. What is this story about? What is this story about? I'm channeling my high school English teacher right now. 
uh, at confirmation two weeks ago, um, uh, uh, people were complaining about their English homework and the books they had to read and kind of took me back to my high school English uh, class. Uh, my high school English teacher, Mrs. Lewis, would always uh, assign us a story to read overnight and we'd come back and she would say, what is this story about? And she'd call on some poor fool in the back row and um, if he had read it, he would say something like, it's about a guy who wakes up and discovers he's a cockroach, or whatever the story was about, right? And, she, and then she would look at that person and say, no, you told me what happened. I asked you what this story is about. See, sometimes we get hung up on the details, Right? We're, we're thinking about what happened, the order of the events in, in, in which they occurred, right? And, 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 and sometimes we miss what the story is about, what it's trying to tell us, what it's trying to communicate, the deeper themes, the symbolism, the metaphors, right? What is it about? What is God trying to tell us? I asked you that question this morning because I think. The story of David and Bathsheba is one of those stories that everyone kind of knows what happened, but few people really understand what it's about. Everyone kind of knows the gory details, but few people really know what's going on beneath the surface. What is this story about? Maybe David and Bathsheba is familiar to us from, from, from Sunday school. And so we sort of get the sanitized Sunday school version of it. I, I remember being introduced to it through Veggie Tales. And in the Veggie Tale um, telling, it was King George and his rubber ducky. And, uh, and King George is, is uh, played by Larry the Cucumber, and he's looking out over his kingdom, and he sees uh, Junior Asparagus playing with the rubber ducky, and even though he has this huge collection of rubber duckies, he sets his eye on that one rubber ducky he can't have, right? Uh, the story of David and Bathsheba has, has, is one of those things we trot out whenever uh, a powerful politician has an affair, commits adultery, or a powerful preacher, and, and, and we say, well, you know, God forgave David, Right? And to us, that's, that's what this story is about. Powerful men who commit adultery. But I would submit to you, it's about so much more than that. See, that's what happened. That's not what it's about. To understand what it's about, first you have to understand what happened. See, um... It, this is one of those stories that everyone thinks they know, but the devil is kind of in the details. It's a lot worse than you remember it. So let me tell you, uh, this isn't the cleaned up Sunday school version. Let me tell you exactly what happens in this story and why it's worse than you remember it. It's found in the um, 11th chapter of Second Samuel. It begins like this. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war... David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. Right off the bat, trouble is brewing. 
See, we're told it's in the spring, the time when kings go off to war. And Israel is off fighting its war, only where is the king? He's in the palace. He's shirking his doogies. It's his job to be on the front line. It's his job to be leading his people into battle. He's bored with that. He's complacent. He's content to let his general do it. And so he's staying behind at the palace. He's become kind of fat and lazy. Doesn't fight giants so much anymore. And we know he's kind of lazy because we're told that he gets up out of his bag in the evening. And he walks out onto his roof. And so he's just, you know, been taking his uh, evening nap. And he walks out on the roof. He's probably got a goblet of wine in his hand. He's looking around. And he's surveying over his kingdom. And he looks down into one of the homes beneath the palace. And he sees a beautiful woman bathing. Now David has numerous wives, as was the custom for, for rich, powerful men during that time. He has numerous wives, and here he's wanting the one person he can't have. But it's worse than you remember. So he calls one of his servants to him, and he says, Who is that? And the servant says, That's Bathsheba. That's Uriah's wife. That's Eliam's daughter. See, he knows. He knows from the very beginning this woman is another man's wife, another man's daughter. But all he sees is an object, and an object who couldn't possibly object. See, here's what you have to understand about Bathsheba. She is vulnerable. Her husband's off at the war. She's living by herself with no one to protect her. And one day... Two armored guards show up at her door. She answers the door, and, and they say, The king has called you to his palace. How could she possibly object? She has to go with them. So she goes with these guards to the king's palace. They, they take, him into the, take her into the king's quarters, and then they shut the door, and the two of them are alone. The king of Israel and this peasant girl who's vulnerable, her husband is away. Now, I ask you, what kind of consent can she possibly give? If we're not talking about rape, we're talking about something awfully close. She's a worse story than you remember. So little time passes. Bathsheba realizes she's pregnant. She sends word to the king. And the king's first instinct is to say this baby isn't his. Is to find some way to make it look like this is actually Uriah's child. Think about that for just a second. The king's first instinct is to let this baby, his own son, grow up in poverty, never knowing that he is the, the heir to the throne of Israel. That's his first instinct. 
He, he calls Uriah home from the battle. And he gets Uriah drunk. And he says, why don't you go pay a late night visit to your wife? Reunite with her. And Uriah's too big of a Boy Scout to do this. Uriah says, I couldn't possibly. My fellow countrymen are, 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 are off at war. They don't get to reunite with their wives. How, how could I spend the night in my own home when, when the ark of God is in a tent? And so he refuses because he's too, he's too good of a person. He's too much of a Boy Scout to do that. And, and David continues to try and get him to go home so that later he can claim that the baby belongs to Uriah. But Uriah won't do it. And so David decides Uriah has to go. And so he writes a letter to his general, Joab. And in the letter he says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to put Uriah on the front lines. And I want you to have the front lines uh, I want you have, to have them charge the wall, and then I want everyone besides Uriah to fall back so that Uriah will be struck down and die. He writes the letter. He folds it up. He puts his seal on it, and then he puts it in Uriah's hand. He makes Uriah carry and deliver his death sentence to the general Joab. It's worse than you think. And if Joab has any sort of moral objection to this, we don't hear about it. All we hear is that the order is carried out. And a messenger is sent back to David to tell him, Uriah the Hittite is dead. At the beginning of our scripture reading this morning, we're told that Bathsheba mourns for her husband. Now, now this word mourn in Hebrew um, is sapad, and it, it's not um, uh, put on black and attend a memorial service. This word means, means, means beat your breast and wail. It's lamentation. Bathsheba is mourning. She's grief-stricken. She's just lost the love of her life. And David waits seven days. Seven days, and those armored guards are at Bathsheba's door again. They say, come with us. And this time, she's taken to the palace. And there's a wedding ceremony waiting on her. This is the worst thing you think. It's a terrible, terrible, terrible story. But what's it about? What is this story about? I'm not trying to make you all feel like you're like in your 11th grade English class. I know how frustrating that was for a lot of us. Some of us aren't really good at metaphors. And when the English teacher uh, says, you know, what's this story about? And we answer, a guy wakes up and he's a cockroach. And then she says, no. It's about alienation and immigrants having trouble assimilating in 20th century European society. We're just sort of going, mm, seems like it's about a guy that turns into a cockroach. 
I'm not sure I'm picking up what you're laying down. Right? Some of us aren't really good with metaphors. And if you were like that in English class, you've got good company. It turns out King David wasn't really good at metaphors either. Because uh, Nathan comes into the throne room and he's got a little short story. He's got a little Hebrew lesson, right? And, and, and he begins to tell him this parable. And here's the thing. The parable goes right over David's head. But it's not that subtle. It's not that subtle. Listen to just a second. Imagine you've done all the things that David has just done. And your prophet has come in and he's telling you this story. There were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a large number of sheep, but the poor man had nothing except one little lamb. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep. Instead, he took the lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. Doesn't take a genius, right? This parable goes right over David's head. He thinks it's, he doesn't even get that it's a parable. He thinks it's something that's happening in his kingdom somewhere, right? And he gets angry, like, bring this man to me, and, and, and justice will be done. I'll make sure he pays four times what he owes, right? David's not picking up what Nathan's laying down. Add to his growing list of sins and crimes, flunking Hebrew literature. He just doesn't get it. But here's the thing. It's not like King David is bad at metaphors. He's a poet. He writes psalms like every other day. Can you think of, of a more enduring and powerful metaphor from the ancient world than the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want? Like David is, is not the flunky in the back of the class. He should be in the front row with his hand raised. He should be picking up what Nathan is laying down. He should be seeing right through this, and yet he can't. And it's not because he's bad at metaphors. It's because he has so deluded himself that he is unable to see his own sin when it's staring him back in the face. See, he's managed to lie to everybody. He's managed to cover his tracks. He's managed to trick everybody. And in the process, he has so deluded himself that when he sees this plainly simple parable, he doesn't see his own sin and his own crime looking back at him. In fact, he's managed to convince himself that he's the hero of this story. He's adding another character to this story, the righteous king who's going to come in and who's going to make everything better, who's going to dispense justice and make sure that justice is served. He's convinced himself that he is the hero of this story and he can't see that, in fact, he is the villain. Want to know what this story is about? It's about us. 
It's about us. It's about you. It's about me. It's about all of us. The fact that God gives us everything. God piles up blessings on our, in our lives and we stand at the top of those blessings and we start looking around for the one thing that we can't have. And then we take it. And then we lie to everyone around us and then we lie to ourselves and then we get ourselves so convinced that we're right that we cannot see the fact that we are the villain of our own story. We convince ourselves that we're the hero, the one that's making everything right, or that we're the victim, the one that has been wronged. And we don't see that sometimes we are the villain of our own story, that we are the sinner in need of repentance, that we are the lost kid that needs to come home. And when we do that, we convince ourselves the gospel is really for someone else. Oh, it was for me once, you know, like when I was in my 20s and I I said that prayer that one time, but now the gospel is for someone else. We convince ourselves that we are the hero of our own story. And just like David, we need the word of God to come to us. Just like David, we need, need, uh, it comes to us through the Bible. Uh, To him, it came through the prophet. We need the word of God to point to us and say, you are the one. You are the one that this whole story is about. You are the one. This whole book is about you. It's about you. See, God created you out of the dust. He breathed the breath of life into you. And he gave you this beautiful creation. And you wanted that, a taste of that one thing you couldn't have. And so you had to be exiled. It was you that, that was so jealous of your sibling. You couldn't stand uh, the way God was blessing him. And so you took him out to the field and you murdered him. That was you. And for that matter, you were the one that sold Joseph into slavery. For that matter, you were the Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, who who let the people remain oppressed because you you benefited too much from the luxury their oppression brought you. And and you you were among the Israelites out in the wilderness grumbling. Yeah, this this magic bread from heaven is great, but when can I get some meat? You were that king standing on the rooftop, looking out over the kingdom, looking for the one thing he couldn't have. You, you were one of the Israelites when the prophets kept coming and saying, don't bow down to idols, don't, don't oppress your neighbors, don't reject the foreigner. And, and, and you were the one that kept over and over and over disobeying that law. And you were the one that was led off in chains to Babylon. That was you. This story is about you. We like to cast ourselves at the ark builders and the giant slayers and, and, the, and the people that, that, that pray and, and, and the lion's mouths are shut. And sometimes we are. Sometimes we're the disciples. Sometimes we're the people that, that, that carry that cross with Jesus. 
But just as often we're the Pharisee, just as often we're the, we're the self-righteous person whose jealousy burns, who, who can't stand the attention this Jesus guy is getting and begins to conspire. Just as often it is our kiss that sends him on his way. Just as often we are the ones that, 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 that beat and spit and mock. And until we're willing to admit this, until we're willing to admit that given the chance, our hand would take the hammer and drive the spike through the wrist of God until we can see that, then the gospel is meaningless to us. It's just a, a, a medication for a disease we don't have. A solution for someone else's problem until we admit in our hearts that we are the one that the story is about. The story of King Frederick the Great of Prussia. And King Frederick is touring all of his prison facilities. And he gets to one of these prisons, and as he's touring the prison facility, uh, word gets around that the king's here. And so everyone is shouting from their jail cells. They're pleading their cases. I didn't do it. I was framed. It was someone else. And everyone's like, like reaching out to him. Here, listen to my story. Because they know what? The king can pardon and so everyone's uh, yelling out their cases as the king walks by. And so King Frederick the Great is walking by all of these cells, and then he passes one cell, and it's silent. That gets his attention. And so he goes, and he, he looks into that cell, and, and there in a dark shadow is, is, is a man just, just sitting there. And he calls out to the man, don't, don't you want to plead your case to me? All these other people are telling me how innocent they are. Don't, don't you want to tell me? And, uh, and the man just sits there and says, No, I did exactly what they said I did. I'm right where I belong. And the king looks at his guards and he says, Free this guilty man at once before he corrupts all the innocents. There's good news here. There's good news. Because as soon, as soon as we're able to admit who we are and what we've done, as soon as we're able to admit that we are not always the hero of our own story, that that, that, that role belongs to another, that we are not the victim of our story, that role belongs to another. As soon as we're able to admit that, we make space in our lives for the king's pardon for the rightful hero who will come in and make everything better. Because there is a righteous king who brings justice, who brings pardon, who makes it all better. But it's not us. And there is a victim in your story, a lamb that has to be slain. But it's not you. It's Jesus. And the good news is if we can see our ways to, way to seeing that, if we can understand who we are in the story, then we have the truth and the truth will set us free. Because if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. All we have to do is realize 
who we are. And we make space for God's love, and His grace, and His forgiveness. That's what this story is about. So I ask you a question. And this is a question I want you to, to think about. What is your story about? Your story. What is it about? Not what happened, right? Don't think about who wronged you and, 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 and who never loved you and, 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 and why you're the victim and, and all that stuff. I'm not asking what happened. I'm asking what your story is about. Because at the end of the day, we've all got different what happens. But there's only two abouts. Either your story is a tragedy about what happens when someone lets sin rule their life, about what happens when someone begins that, 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 that downward spiral, when someone cannot see themselves in the story and it becomes their downfall. It's either a tragedy or it's a gospel. It's about the redeeming power of the king. It's about the one who comes in and makes it all right, who restores us. So what is your story about? I've invited Brooke to come uh, play a song for us so we can have a, a moment of reflection. You're free to use this altar. You're free to bow at the altar of your heart. This time is for you to think about your story. Do you need to admit to times when you were the villain of your story, or when you played the victim card and knew it wasn't true? Do you need to to surrender to God some of the what happened that you never quite got over so you can get on with what your life is supposed to be about? I want to give you the space and the time to do that right now. What is your story about? Thank you.